Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hey, diggers. Years ago, I was seduced into seeing what I assumed was an old pop act. But these were good seats and with good company, so I reluctantly attended. That was Rod Stewart. And by the end of the show, I was a fan. First, there is that raspy, soulful, and instantly recognizable voice. Now add a catalog of legendary songs like Maggie May, Every Picture Tells a Story, Tonight's the Night, and of course, those hot legs. Wow. So now, Sir Rod is teaming up with the always amazing Cindy Lauper on tour this summer, and on August 28th, they make a stop at the Events Center in Reno, Nevada. Don't miss this dynamic duo. Visit Ticketmaster.com or call 888-288-1833. Presented by The Row and Harris Reno. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here behind the mic back home in San Francisco. Thank you for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. If you'd like to help out the RNRA, please head over to our brand new website and click on the Support the Shows tab. You can click from there to our Patreon page and make a much-appreciated donation. Or if you'd like to pick up some awesome Rock and Roll Archaeology swag, click to our Public link. That's rockandrollarchaeology.com. Thank you. Today's special guest is a favorite son of San Francisco. Joel Selvin was the rock music critic for the San Francisco Chronicle from 1970 to 2009. Joel's columns transmitted the vibe to music fans across the decades, from the excess of the 70s through the long, slow fade of the late 90s and early aughts. Joel left the Cron just about 10 years ago to write books that look back across the eras, and he's written almost 20 now. Joel Selvin is a Bay Area guy all the way. He's got that old-school Barbary Coast accent and sharp, observant eyes. He's lived it, and he loves to tell the tales. 
He's friendly and funny, but uh, he's got a bit of that curmudgeon thing going on, too. He says what he thinks and takes no shit from anybody. I had the pleasure of interviewing him at his home, and uh, Diggers, he's one of us. First and last, Joel Selvin is a fan. He lives and breathes rock and roll. He loves this stuff and can't wait to tell you about it. It was everywhere, in every nook and cranny at his home. Fifty-plus years of rock dreams. Joel is the curator of his own private rock and roll museum. It was uh, tough to tear myself away from all the cool swag and get down to doing the interview. Great stuff. And of course, we are fans of Joel. He writes strong prose, knows his stuff, and he's got some swagger and attitude. We have referenced his books several times now in our main podcast, and we will use him again. That I can assure you, dear listener. Today, we are going to spend most of our time on Joel Selvin's newest book, Fare Thee Well, the final chapter of The Grateful Dead's Long Strange Trip, co-authored with Pamela Turley, published by Decapo Press. Uh, we are deadheads here at the RNRA. <laughs> that, that's no secret. The Grateful Dead continue to fascinate us. In our younger days, uh, following the dead on tour was like the rock and roll version of running off to join the circus. Uh, There was nothing quite like it in the music landscape, the golden road to unlimited devotion. Sure, it's loose and chaotic, uh, an archaic throwback. We've seen some dead shows that were downright bad, cringe-inducing, but at their best, the Grateful Dead performed improvisational rock with heart and fire, On a good night, they could play together at an extremely high level, and it was all done on the spot and in the moment without any kind of a net. And it was a different show every single time. But Joel's new book is not about unlimited devotion or looking at the highs. In fact, it's not really about the Grateful Dead. It's a clear-eyed, critical take from a reporter about what happens when the estimated prophet dies suddenly and leaves the flock leaderless and adrift. What do the four apostles do in the aftermath when the main man has left the building other than become a ship of fools? It was a 20-year struggle. Bob Weir, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzmann, and Mickey Hart wandered the wilderness, uh, together and apart, trying to reinvent themselves personally and professionally. It wasn't always pretty. At times they turned their back on their own past. Other times they went all in and embraced the cult of the tie-dye. Joel can be rough at times, and we're going to talk about that too. Some dead fans have criticized his latest book as a hit job, just airing dirty laundry. We don't see it like that. It's just an unflinching chronicle that includes the missteps and the mistakes, and there were a lot of them. The guys struggled for a long time trying to figure out what to do and how to redefine themselves after Jerry Garcia passed. And there's the triumphant, uh, happily ever after moment at the end. The five Fare Thee Well concerts, two in Santa Clara and three in Chicago. The four survivors, Bobby, Phil, Mickey, and Billy, played the largest single concert by a single band in history and proved, after all, that the music never stopped. We'll hear a little from co-author Pamela Turley at the beginning, but most of the interview is with Joel. So, let's beat it on down the line. Let's meet Joel Selvin. (laughs) 
Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Joe Selvin and Pamela Turley. How are you guys doing today? Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. So um, while we are here to discuss your newest book, Joel, your newest book, uh, Fare Thee Well, the final chapter of The Grateful Dead's Long Strange Trip that you co-authored with Pamela, um, let's get the Joel Selvin origin story. You, uh, you grew up here in the Bay Area, right? Grew up is not quite the right term, but I was born and raised in Berkeley. Okay. And um, cross the bridge. He dropped out of Berkeley High School in June of 1967, just in time for the summer of love. And good time to be dropping out of high school. It was, and I, uh, I am, I, I did dance to the Grateful Dead at the Fillmore Auditorium under the influence of LSD. Freely admitting that. So I was, you know, one of my generation's, uh, you know, sort of quintessential experiences. We didn't yeah. know that at the time, mm-hmm. but we did know it was fun. Uh, yeah, because now it's turned into a thing, hasn't it? It was kind of like we the ground so- central, uh, ground zero of the culture. Uh, we were uh, always watched the deadheads with some sort of, like, modest uh, alarm. Uh, <laughs> the, the, they were the, the ones over on the side of the Fillmore that danced with their arms above their heads, and uh, they tended toward the patchouli. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, they weren't there. I mean, the dead were just one so of the So the Wookiees were there from the very beginning. And pretty quickly, the, yeah. the, the, they attracted this, uh, uh, this element. Uh, by 70s, when they're playing Winterland, the, the entire audience showed up on Muni. I mean, these, these, these buses yeah. just yeah. packed full of stinking <laughs> hippies like uh, uh, Rush Hour would pull up outside Winterland and just disgorge these people. I mean, the parking lot mm-hmm. never sold out when the dead played Winterland. Yeah, yeah. And Pamela, uh, what? Uh, where do you come from? You're, you're not a Bay Area native, right? No, no, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and um, I was, I'm a freelance writer and editor there, and I also had a theater for, a performing arts theater for five years and produced a radio show, so that's basically my... Oh, all right. So how, how did the two of you get together to team up for this uh, this big book on the Grateful Dead? Well, Day? I met Pamela through friends and had come to a point uh, after the Fairthewell concerts where I realized that the there was a book there, and I had an old proposal from, like, 2006 that could be revised into a uh, a, a real meaningful book proposal, but I was in the middle of writing uh, my Altamont book. Great book, by the way. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 time was an issue, so I, I, I just asked Pamela if she would revise the uh, book proposal, and and you know, so she's really responsible for getting the book deal. Yeah, with the Capo Press, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, very cool, very cool. So now, in 1972, you began at the uh, San Francisco Chronicle as the rock critic. Um, how did you score that gig? Oh, you know, ass kissing and, and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, sycophantic behavior. Uh, I, I, I'd been a copy boy at the Chronicle after I left uh, high school for a year. And so I sort of knew where the paper clips were and stuff like that. And uh, uh, I was brought on board by a columnist named John L. Wasserman. Yeah. And then, you know, I started out, you know, filing John's records in his apartment. 
So then you came on as the rock critic, is that right? John didn't like rock and roll. Oh, okay. He was the the music critic. Yeah, uh, he was so. sort of a, a, a you know a Playboy magazine kind of hi-fi uh, jazz and Johnny Mathis type of dude, and uh, he descended to the uh, position at the Chronicle, and he had knew that he had to deal with rock music somehow, so. He got me a half-time job, and I dealt with rock music. Mm-hmm. And that became a full-time job, I'm sure. Pretty quickly. quickly. Right. And then, you know, the whole thing blew up in uh, my career path. I mean, by the 80s, the demographics of the thing were just unbelievable, and, and the public interest was at a fever pitch. And my stuff was selling records, uh, selling papers. It was crazy. I mean, uh, I remember when Prince came to town to do a bunch of uh, Cow Palace shows, and and we broke the ticket sale story. You know, big deal, you know, concert tickets go on sale. They put it in, in what they call a balloon on the front page, and the damn boxes sold out. The street boxes sold out. I mean, I'd never done anything like that. Right. I came to him, hey, man, that, that Prince article sold out the street boxes. I'm like, whoa, okay. Well, uh, how about a race? Beat what was going on in the U.N. that day, huh? Wow. Wow, that's that was a, That was a time when, the you know, the newspaper was the only source of that kind of information. There yeah. was no Internet, and the radio stations were way behind. They had to read it in the newspaper first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what did you learn after all those years of being the— Rock critic, what do you what? What's your takeaway about rock music? Wow, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. But uh, over the course of from 1970 to 2009, my years of working at the Chronicle, they, you know, I stood on the curb and watched an amazing parade. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was still standing on the curb in 2009, the parade had thinned out mightily. So would you would you agree that? Uh, that rock music as a cultural touchstone is past its prime. Oh, uh, you should have been here, uh, like the surfers say yesterday. Uh, I, every so often I'll, I'll go back into my files for something uh, research-wise, and, and I'll pull out my uh, byline files uh, from the 80s, and, 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 and you just can't believe, like in one week, you'd be reviewing Tom Petty, Bob Seger, Prince, and they were all new, fresh talents that were putting out the greatest records of their careers. All at the same time. It, yeah, it seemed like somebody that, like that, that, that would show up uh, once a week or certainly you know, once every couple of months. Every you would get somebody week like there was that. a great yeah. new record out. Yeah, yeah. And that thinned out really bad in the, in, in the second half of the 80s. And by the 90s, it was like getting to be like hip-hop was the most exciting thing going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the rock thing really descended after grunge into some kind called alt-rock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other stuff they don't make anymore, the non-alternative rock. Yeah. But yeah, it's a cultural thing, and it's the history of all art movements, you know. They the, come, the they go. bell curves mm-hmm. that start with the avant-garde feeding a, a new set of thought into the mainstream, which takes these ideas to a logical extension, and then you start getting the diminishing returns as repetition and duplication settle in. And, you know, to me, if you look at the history of rock and roll and rhythm and blues, and you go to 1984 and look at Michael Jackson's Thriller album and Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Those are kind of pinnacles of 50, 60, 70 years of developing history that then, you know, you go follow that back down over the and and you get Belle Biv and DeVoe and John Bon Jovi. 
right? <laughs> so that's that's sort of like where the the curve. Just just fells. found himself in the Hall of Fame, you know the yeah. rock and roll. He's Hall of wanted fame. to for so long. Yeah. You know, I did a book with L. A. Reid, and when L. A. Reid was uh, appointed uh, uh, chairman of Island uh, uh, Def Jam Records, the, the John Bon Jovi was the first guy from the rock world that wanted to meet with him, and he, he helicoptered. Uh, L.A. over to his place in New Jersey. And this is L.A.'s first experience with a rock star, you right. know. And this guy wanted two things. He wanted two things. He wanted to be on the cover of Rolling Stone, and he wanted to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And L.A. is the new president of his label. He goes, well, I know some people at Rolling Stone, and I'm going to research the Hall of Fame for you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been going on a long time. Apparently yeah. from the very beginning. Right, 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 right. <laughs> And Pamela, tell us a little bit about your musical background and your journey and how you got here. Well, I um, never saw The Grateful Dead. Um, somehow, The Grateful Dead and I never crossed paths until 2005 when I went to a rat dog show in Atlanta. And uh, I know Who rat got dog, you to go to a rat dog show? It was show. a friend of mine, mm -hmm. and, and um, I didn't even know what a deadhead was. Oh. I, I was so Really? Clueless. That completely... Completely. This, this social order completely Just passed complete, you by. This, huh? this cultural phenomenon had completely <laughs> passed me by. And uh. so I did not know what a deadhead was. But, um, you know, by then, Bobby had already... He had a... Uh, Jimmy Herring was sitting in, so he had yeah. a lead guitar, mm -hmm. and he had already added a lot of Grateful Dead songs to his lineup. So, you know, there was enough phantom DNA in that, that music that it attracted me. And so after that, I started traveling around the country going to other shows, and eventually I saw 150 <laughs> post-Jerry shows. It's from 2005. Crazy. From 2005 to 2015, when I started, we, you know, started working on the proposal. And stuff. So you got on the bus. I did. Well, I got on the bus, but I never, you know, I was, wasn't was one of the, the tribe on the bus. <laughs> why, why do you consider yourself not part of the tribe with 150 <laughs> shows under your belt? <laughs> to me, you know, I, I found so much to uh, be fascinated by. Uh -huh. um, the, the culture right. was sociologically fascinating to me. Oh, without doubt. Yeah. yeah. So I like to... I go believe there are books that have <clears throat> actually been written about oh, that. Really? Yes. I don't even know, but I... But I, I personally found it really fascinating, and I like to observe it. I, 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 I would like to be there. The music was compelling to me often, mm -hmm. and um, I thought there was much to like, but I didn't want to join the tribe. It's weird. I know. Yeah, I, I, I kind of understand that. I have about 30 shows oh, under my belt. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, I don't consider myself a, a deadhead. Mm -hmm. I, I I like them. I, in fact, I would even say I love them. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's a it's a great catalog of work. Yes, um, it is. Uh, certainly, uh, from a cultural standpoint, yes. they they have a, an indelible stamp uh, on the period, uh, and it's 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 a big part of the rock and roll story. More, more so than I maybe are willing to suggest Thanks. at right. certain times. So, but I yeah. loved also traveling around the country, just seeing. Well, it, yeah, the that's country. yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. It was a great opportunity. Yeah, which was a, a, a it, it's a big part of the the Grateful Dead experience of right. of themselves right. wanting to just travel around and right. see the country and see right. the world and you know basically join the circus yeah. and you know was, there there you have it. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> so you were at the Chronicle until two thousand and nine. Why why did you leave? What was was it just time or? Well, you may have heard uh, about the newspaper business. Oh, yeah, of course, yes. The Chronicle Disruption. Was losing a yes. million dollars a week at the time. Yeah, yeah. I looked at the new union contract, 
and thought it's time to try my hand somewhere else. And, and uh, I, I'd never before that minute thought about leaving the newspaper business. I figured I was going out of that office feet first. Right, right. But uh, they they managed to steer the Chronicle back in, in, in between the gutters, and mm -hmm. you know they're running a newspaper down there now. I don't think it's as much fun as it was, mm -hmm. and I'm having way too much fun, so I'm not like having any regrets. I ran into my friend Steve Rubenstein because uh, 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 we were at um, an event together, and and he quit the same day I did in '09, and then five years later, after becoming a kindergarten teacher went back to work at the Chronicle. And he's having fun. Five he says, years of kindergartners will do that Yeah, he for says you. his attitude's changed a lot, though. <laughs> well, now he knows what he's dealing with. So. <laughs> My gosh. So, so um, uh, you know, in, in, in 2007, you participated in a PBS documentary on the Summer of Love. Uh, you were quoted in the special. Um, for a minute there, it was real, and we all knew it. And it was in our hearts and in our minds. And if we could have continued to act on that and grow on that, you know, who knows what happened. But we didn't. And what's left is like a ring around the bathtub. You know, it's just a residue or something much greater. I think you were saying that moment, um, you know, similar to Hunter S. Thompson's, uh, uh, that, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back quote. Um you guys were kind of saying the same thing. So do you think the experiment failed? Failed's a strong word. It's something that happened. Everybody that was part of it and, and, and everybody who wasn't part of it has an idea of what it was. Some of them are aligned. Some of them are quite disparate. I think of it when I see yoga studios in strip malls. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, hey, wow. there's a little bit the, the of the hate, Eastern philosophy the that kind of came in lives, at that time, right? right yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, nobody was interested in Eastern philosophy in this country except for you know uh, crazies uh, right. uh, until Prior the eighties. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they brought a lot of stuff to the the culture and the party. There was a moment that I alluded to in that interview that you quoted, where there was a shared vision of evolved consciousness somewhat induced by chemicals. But the vision was real of a evolved species that could, through just the power of consciousness, uh, solve massive amounts of the problems facing the world's population, you know. Yeah. End war, end hunger, end disease. Mm -hmm. All that could be completely done with simply an evolution of consciousness. And we saw that and we put our, we reached out for it, but it's uh, it's it's evanescent. It vanished, and uh, the 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 dream sort of lingers behind. Although there's a lot of cynicism attached to it now, you know, dumb hippies and all that. But the, at the essence of it was 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 something truly utopian, and 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 for that moment seemed possible. But uh, apparently, human nature is just. A very powerful force. Yeah, you know, you're 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 trying to beat back uh, thousands of years of human interaction and to try to change something. But you know, who knows? I mean, I I, I, I personally think that the you know the political situation we're in today, the culture wars, uh, stem from that period of time. And uh, you know, I can pretty much tell 
you know, what kind of person you are just by whether you thought the 60s were good or, or not. I've been to a friend of mine from the period uh, who told me that he doesn't trust anybody that didn't take LSD. And that's putting it a little bit more strongly than I would, but I know what he means. Mm-hmm. Is there's, a, there, there's a distinction between those who did and those who didn't, and it yeah, has to do with is. a level of consciousness and an ability to understand certain things that other people just don't even bother to consider. That's a great answer. Hmm. Well, let's get to your books. So, Ricky Nelson, Original Teen Idol in 1990. I believe that was your first book? It was. Yeah. Why uh, Why Ricky as your first subject? I can't remember what I wanted to first write a book about, but Ricky was always going to be my second book. <laughs> I don't know what the deal was, but um, it just seemed like a good idea. He was fairly recently deceased. Uh, the fifties were still part of the uh, cultural firmament, and I, 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 I sen- sensed a story. Uh, the book was kind of a hardship, but it, but it came together fairly quickly, and 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 you know, it was well received, both in terms of reviews and sales. Almost all the reviews said the same thing, something along the lines of "This is a nice book," but nobody said it was a great book, and and that. I realized was uh, I was getting like B minus over C plus. Right. And, and, and so the next time I went out to write a serious book, uh, and it was published in 94 called summer of love. Um, I, I took a couple lessons from the Ricky Nelson book. One was that I was determined to let my <clears throat> material dictate my story. And I took an agenda into the Ricky Nelson book, you know, which was to prove that he was a greater rock and roll musician than give a lot credit of people for. were giving credit. And, to uh, did this rock critic thing, despite my getting totally sidetracked into a much bigger, much more interesting story about the nature of the American family. But I still gave a little review of every record that Ricky made and, you know, listed all his albums. And you know, and it was like, they, when I looked at it later, they, they were like, you know, weights that I hung on the horse without, didn't do anything but slow the story down. Right. So uh, when I wrote Summer of Love, I was determined, A, to let my material dictate the story, and B, to uh, write from such a strong point of view that some people weren't going to like what I wrote, and that that was going to be the way to really being clear that uh, that I'd had a point of view, had something to say, is that that, that some people were not going to like it. Uh, I, I let the material dictate the story so much that I was halfway through drafting it when I realized, oh, my God, I haven't written anything about the music. <laughs> so I thought that over and decided, ah, appendix, <laughs> right. the music. The music, right. So I don't even have to worry about this. We'll deal with it later. You know, We'll put it in a box at the end of the book, and if people want to know what records to listen to, they can find out there. Yeah. And then I can, meanwhile, back to the story. Uh, and then there was... It, it, it wasn't an arch viewpoint, but let's say it just said plenty, plenty of attitude. And uh, you know, some of the best reviews I got were people trying to, to hate on the book. Uh, it, 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 and, and I felt really at home now. Okay, now I've done what I set out to do. People love this book. People hate this book. They're arguing about this book. Right. So I've, I've presented something out there that's a, that, that's got merit as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's just... This this is too fresh, too strong to just go down, and people are fighting about it. 
That's what you want. Now, now almost 20 books with, uh, you know, most notably, uh, I think, Red, My Uncensored Life and Rock, which was a New York Times uh, number one bestseller. And, of course, A Smart Ass, uh, the music and journalism of Joel Selvin, uh, which I'm sure we're going to get a bit of today. Uh, and uh, last year's great, uh, Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, Thank and you. The Inside Story of uh, Rock's Darkest Days. That's some variety of subject matter. You were there pretty much at the beginning, as we, we discussed, of the San Francisco scene and uh, at its end. And let's face it, the, the end has come through um, uh, the, the date. Uh, and, 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 you know, the date of the deceased is, is in question. But, um, you know, do you think there's an actual pinpoint that you can you, – you kind of alluded to it a little bit in the, the late 80s, saying that that's – that's kind of when rock and roll might have kind of well, went Francisco, over the hill. In San Francisco, there was always a, a lot of interest in uh, uh, upcoming bands. And there, there, was a, there was a game afoot. Who's next? What's happening? Yeah. Uh, and, and that ran into the 80s uh, uh, when bands like uh, uh, Faith No More and Chris mm-hmm. Isaac and Silvertone and mm-hmm. uh, Metallica. Even, even Metallica yeah. uh, started emerging. And they're all... Very much San Francisco breeds, even though they don't sound alike. Uh, the, the San Francisco breed was a musical maverick, and they were all musical mavericks. But the club scene, which was the real um, yeah, diversity really is a, a big thing about the music scene. Oh yeah, San so, Francisco yeah, always uh, has been. Uh, Robin Williams called San Francisco a, a human uh, wildlife preserve. <laughs> uh, the uh, club scene was always the watershed uh, uh, for for this stuff, and it it really started to dry up uh, around the time. That like Third Eye Blind came out of it. The Third Eye Blind and and Green Day were like the last bands to come out of the Bay Area club scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the time that Green Day did Dookie, the club scene was dead. I mean, there were little punk enclaves still over in Berkeley and and tiny little hipster bars in Soma, but it wasn't like it had been up until then, where people could actually make a living playing nightclubs in the Bay Area. Locally, yeah, yeah. local musicians, right? Yeah, you didn't make a great living, but, but you could you survive could, you could here. Get people city, out yeah. to see your gig in San Jose, as well as uh, Sunnyvale, and you, you, you know you could work it around the uh, up to San Rafael and even Petaluma and Katati, mm-hmm. uh, and that just dried up and blew away. So. And the culture changed. I mean, really, U2 would have never come from San Francisco. <laughs> uh, so uh, a lot of things gravitated away from that. And then uh, to me, the thing that, that killed it was the dot-com kits because uh, they, they they had no interest in original music. Uh, what they wanted to hear uh, after they got off work at 10 o'clock at night was um, ironic bands covering things like 80s new wave hits or old disco songs and and that put cover bands in business and tribute bands in business but it just <clears throat> eradicated It'll the see. original music scene yeah wow okay fare thee well the final chapter of the grateful dead's long strange trip why take on a band that is over 50 years old and uh, over 20 since its founder and as you say north star left the broke down palace to uh, to go to the cosmic void Oh, this is a great story. I, I, I recognized that early on after Jerry died, covering the events that, that the the other guys were involved in. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was Phil's Christmas concert or uh, Mickey's Euro Disco CD. 
I, I quickly came to understand that each one of these guys after Jerry had died, <clears throat> uh, each one of these guys after Jerry had died was undergoing some kind of deep and 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 devastating personal tragedy and and uh, dealing with it in their own inimitable and unique ways. That became a part of my reporting early on. I, 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 I started seeing that thread and, and I would go to these things and that would be the compelling connection that, that, that I reported on. So like I told you earlier, sometime in 2006, I sort of decided, yeah, you know, this is kind of a book. This is an epic. And it's still, it's a still ongoing story. Oh, here. Right? By that time, it was it 11 was years past. It was an at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> oh, yeah. Well, things were pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't have been worse. Yeah. Which uh, we'll talk about. Uh, but uh, the book industry wasn't the slightest bit interested in a book that had that kind of ending. So like a Hollywood ending? No, oh, no, like you're, a, like you're a, missing everybody. Everybody's every, not everybody speaking. Everybody dies at the end. <laughs> everybody's not speaking. They've sold all the real estate. They've closed the office. They've mm. fired everybody. End of book. Yeah, not happy. No, right. and no right. redemption. No, yeah. uh, uh, really, you know, uplift. No, nothing to. And and that was a lesson for me. I didn't quite realize what books were made of entirely, and uh, I'm still learning. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the things is I came to understand, ah, you know, they need a payoff. They need something like a redemptive conclusion. They don't need to have a happy ending. Right. But it's got to have some reason to have finished the book, put it down and go, ah. Well, a story is a story, no matter how you're telling it. And we're still telling it the way the Greeks did. So, uh, you know, you got to have, you got to have, uh, 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 you know, the the villains. You've got to have the heroes. You have to have uh, the climax, and um, you know, it's got to be compelling. So, I, I think, I think I know where you're going there. So, so I know um, many deadheads are a little miffed at your book. They just don't like the dirty laundry uh, being aired uh, about their favorite family. But um, I do want to point out that you dedicate the book to the core four and the deadheads themselves. Um, But I think it's fair to say that um, all of the core four was given ample treatment by you um, uh, and your co-writer, Pamela Turley, who's had to... Uh, move uh, move to another uh, uh, another interview, uh, and with maybe the exception of of Phil and Jill Lesh, it seems like Phil and his wife come across as Machiavellian in the aftermath of Jerry's death. Um, I believe you were able to interview both Bob Weir and Mickey Hart for the book. Yes, that's true, right? And uh, and you, you I, I think you reached out to Bill Kreutzmann, and, and he we agreed, de- and it didn't quite happen. Kreutzmann and I debated it for a while. Uh, the Lesh has never replied to any of the uh, entreaties, but I, I'm not surprised. Uh, uh, they don't have a good story to tell. Uh, their whole attitude about um, their public profiles changed substantially in the past 20 years. No, I didn't expect them to cooperate. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I've written a book about Sly and the Family Stone that's widely considered to be the definitive account of that band's career. I never talked to Sly. Right, right. I didn't need to. You don't to. need to, right. I, right. Uh, and and, and equally, well, uh, equally true is that Phil Lesh and his wife Jill made their opinions well known to their associates who were happy to repeat them to me. Mm. And after you hear the same story over and over and over again, 
you begin to feel like you're on safe you have ground. Enough, enough number of sources, yeah. right, that uh, that can tell the story as uh, as it happened. And what I always said about the Sly Stone thing was, well, what was Sly going to say anyway? Yeah, I did all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty much all he could say. Right. And I'm not sure what the Leshes could say. I'm understanding as much as I can with their predicament. I don't think they really had a tremendous degree of affection or respect for the other bandmates. I think that the personal calamity, the the, the um, physical health jeopardy, the liver transplant and yeah. Jill's cancer, yeah. I, I, I think that welded them into an us-against-them mentality about their entire life. And their actions after that point are completely different than they were before that point. So obviously that was a pivot in their lives and in their attitudes about the Grateful Dead and, and how they were going to deal with all that. Mm. I, I can understand what, they're, what they've done. And, and I go to great pains to explain it and, and delineate it, detail it. But um, Yes, you do. You do. It's, it's not something that, I mean, I, I, in, in all cases of these guys, you know, I, I hope to, to be non-judgmental. It was a nonfiction account. I didn't make this stuff up. This is not an opinion piece. No, no, no. It's the it's the story as uh, you found it, as a reporter would do, uh, going to uh, search for sources and uh, trying to get as close to the truth as you can to any truth. So uh, that's the, what I took away from uh, from reading the book. So now we 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 discussed earlier that you 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 did see the dead at the at the old Fillmore uh, back in '67. So and I know you don't consider yourself a deadhead, but how many Grateful Dead shows do you think you've seen in your life? Well, I'll tell you this: I first saw the Grateful Dead in April of 1966. They were playing a teen dance in Berkeley, and all throughout the 60s in San Francisco, you couldn't avoid the Grateful Dead. They, they, were, <laughs> they were on, on a bill. Every that bill you wanted to you see. see. <laughs> they were on every mm-hmm. strike. They mm-hmm. were at every rally. Uh, they didn't have an audience anywhere else in the country at that point except downtown New York. So uh, by the time they've rolled into their sort of unique status uh, at Winterland in the 70s, I'd seen them dozens of times. Right. And at that point, Cause, I made cause now it, you're the rock critic. Yeah, uh, and I made it a point right. to to go to dead shows, and uh, just as I used to say, to keep my ticket punched. So, I definitely know that I saw the Grateful Dead at least once every subsequent year, sometimes two or three times. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't always write about it. I didn't always stay for the whole show. If I wrote about it, I stayed for the whole show. But, uh, um, you know, I remember, I remember going to the Oakland Auditorium because D- Dylan was going to pose for photographs in between sets backstage. And I thought, oh, it would be cool to see Dylan at a dead show. <laughs> uh, that was a Mardi Gras show where, you know, everybody has the Mardi Gras costumes. I, I mean, the, the, I remember Mickey Hart calling me at home on a New Year's Eve and saying, what are you doing home? Etta James in the Tower of Power or down here at, at, at Henry Kaiser and we're going to do uh, 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 in the midnight hour at, at what, you know, 
know, get down here, you know? Right. Yeah. Etta James. Yeah. I'm all about that. (laughs) That's better than the dead show. (laughs) Now we're talking my language. And and you've seen most of the various incarnations after uh, Jerry's left. Up until 2009. Again, they were uh, a matter of news reporting, you know, that you got to go, they've got a new band out, you got to go cover it. I felt like the Chronicle needed to be the market leader in this, in this story. Uh, and then in 2009, when I left the paper, man, I stopped going. I mean, I, I, I had no interest in seeing these, these, these fake deads. Uh-huh. Uh, I, my, my recollections in, uh, of, of the authentic dead were way too clear to go to a Phil and Friends show and think this was anything but like a really poor tribute band. Really? Yeah. And uh, I mean, but I'm the same way about McCartney too. I mean, uh, you know, McCartney just seems like a Beatles tribute band to me. Good one. These days. Yeah, good one. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, I don't quite get the connection with the guy that I did in, in his 75 tour mm-hmm. when he was still like trying to be a current artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. With wings and. The same with yeah. the dead. The, the, the dead were always a, a struggle, an ordeal. Uh, you never knew what they were going to do. Uh, but there was a chance that it was going to be great. Yeah. Um, it wasn't a good chance, but you wanted <laughs> to take it anyway. That was the game. Yeah. And uh, they would reward you often enough to keep you coming back. I completely understand. That was my, that was my sense of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as Jerry got uh, uh, worse and worse in the late 80s, I'm, I mean, the band just bloated in the same way. Uh, and... Uh, there very little of the new material was really compelling and they start adding like other people's songs to their sets uh, that just struck me as strange. So uh, as as the band cruised into the 90s, I, I really thought they were a shell of what, of, of what they'd been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly after Brent Midland passed away. Um, oh, yeah. The, went the, the, the Hornsby-Wellnick period yeah. was particularly strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why do you think things went so badly after Jerry died? Um, I mean, maybe it just starts with the funeral. Uh, you know, the Coons Garcia and Mountain Girl uh, issue there on the dock, as you lay out in the book, is pretty telling. Well, the Grateful Dead had always had a, uh, adhered to a very strict code of silence about their personal matters. And they'd talk to you all night about music. Mm-hmm. But the uh, minute you asked them about the other guys in the band or the old ladies, you know, they hushed up. And uh, I mean, that was such a pervasive sentiment that, that a guy like Steve Parrish, who was Garcia's roadie, yeah. he, he he never participated in an interview. He never gave uh, a, a writer the time of day. Um, so when Jerry dies and all this power just lands in the lap of a widow who's been on the scene less than a year and a half. Uh, Deborah Coon. Yeah, uh, that was like, oh dear, now what? Because first of all, the Grateful Dead hierarchy is not used to dealing with females in authority. And second of all, a year and a half is like five minutes in Grateful Dead time. (laughs) Right, right, right. So uh, she didn't have any friends in the band. She didn't have any support, and she just took it out. Uh, She barred Mountain Girl from the um, funeral, and that was immediately like, what? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, that that was unexpected in every regard within the uh, Grateful Dead uh, world, that, there, that people would actually act out in public. And um, that 
Deborah Coons, uh, Carolyn Garcia thing rolled into a lawsuit and, oh, and into public. court. Yeah. And the uh, subpoena of Steve Parrish broke the code. Parrish went to Deborah and begged her not to do it. Uh, she went ahead and did it, and he destroyed her case and signed a book deal to write a memoir. I mean, it was, the, the code of silence was over at that point. Um, that would lead to uh, the core four, those guys, airing a lot of their disputes in public, which nobody had ever seen before, inside or outside the band. And the ramifications within the band were huge. It, 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 it added so much intense antagonism to the situation. Not only were they arguing, but they were arguing out in public. Well, yeah, yeah, for the first time. You know, it, it doesn't seem it's a surprise to most people um, from the book that that Jerry actually died. Um, he was in bad shape. Um, you know, his health was poor. Um, you know, when you say know most people, that. I assume you're exempting the band because Jerry's death came as a complete and sudden surprise to everybody in the band. Well, I, I, you know, I, all I, I can say for myself, I saw that last tour and uh, at Shoreline and was walked out just going, oh, my God, they need to take a break. They need to stop doing what they're doing. There were doing. a lot of people that recognized that, but they weren't in the band. Wow. wow. I, I know uh, one of the band So the organization was unprepared for this oh, to eventuality. The, to, the, to the extreme. There was, there was no there, there was nothing in place for this at all. Yeah. Uh, they were expecting to go out on the road in September. After Jerry got out of rehab. They didn't know he was in rehab. They didn't even know they were. Yeah. Oh. So... <clears throat> Yeah, so then you know, how do you how do you take an organization that's built more like a family than anything resembling professionalism, and the head of that fam- family who's famous for leading by not leading, right? Um, you know, dysfunction is just it's going to happen. I suppose you're right. It was inevitable, uh, given the the, the amount. The, the nature of the relationships between the four guys that were left behind. They, they just didn't have a relationship independent of Jerry. No, you, you actually say in the book that all of them thought that they were Jerry's best friend and Jerry was their best friend. And, with, and not without some good reason. Each one of them could, could make a case for that. Uh-huh. Uh, and, 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 you know, you got to look back on that and realize, well, that's Jerry's doing, Right. And then, and Jerry was an amazing communicator. I, I know that from my own r- relationship with him. He just had this ability to be deferential in a way that made him seem central to every equation, right. but not the dominant factor. It was, just, it was brilliant stuff. Uh, I mean, a guy who was raised pretty much in a, in his brother's pocket, right? The latchkey kids out yeah. in the Excelsior district. His father died when he was, what, five years yeah, old? Yeah, he had all these strategies for, for, for getting along that were really uh, uh, unusual. Mm-hmm. And and by the time he got the Grateful Dead going, the, the apparent chaos and lack of organization was a reflection of those, ac- which were actual Garcia strategies. 
And everybody went in, everybody that was in the dead bought into it. And they elaborated on it. They would sit down and think about this stuff for days. Mm-hmm. And everybody was in, indoctrinated in the, in, in the philosophy, whether it was managers like Danny Rifkin and Rock Scully or the other musicians in the band or the crew like Ramrod and Parrish and those guys. Everybody was indoctrinated in the philosophy and they lived their lives uh, as if they were outlaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roaming the countryside, just like uh, raping the hole in the rape, wall, raping game. and pillaging, and yeah, <laughs> a modern version. <laughs> so, so in, in the end, it, it seems like maybe it's the eldest brother trying to lay claim to the corner office, um, recognizing a changing world and seeing that they needed to evolve or die. I mean, Phil did seem to have the most claim. Um, though when someone stands up to lead the leaderless, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're going to ruffle some feathers. It was a power vacuum and those guys weren't really involved in power politics in their entire career. So everybody was inexperienced with that. And you're absolutely right. Phil was the, the successful architect of a post-Jerry band yeah, that Bobby Weir refused to be, that Mickey Hart deliberately avoided, and that Billy Kreutzmann <clears throat> didn't even contemplate. Yeah. Uh, yet at the same time, here's something to think about. Those those Phil bands were based on a kind of market research. You know, what do the deadheads want? They want this, they want they want these songs, they want to perform this way. With oh, these Phil, Phil kind of, yeah, looked yeah. at this a little more professionally. Well, you can call it professionally, but let me tell you something. It was the first time in the history of the Grateful well, Dead that yeah. they cared what the audience <laughs> thought. Mm-hmm. Now, when I talked to Bobby Weir and I said, now, how could you do this rat dog thing? Man, the deadheads hated rat dog. <laughs> they didn't, You didn't have a guitar. You wouldn't even play dead songs. You know what he said? He said, fuck them. Yeah. Well, he and that to is the right. That's, doing, no, right? that's the attitude. That's what made the Grateful Dead great. They didn't care what the audience no. did, or you the know, record company. Here's, or, an, here's uh, another the, one: is the PR he, guys Jill Lesh wanted anybody, people in Further yeah. to dress a certain way. You know, there was like there was there was dress requirements in Further, like no headbands, no hippie gear, background singers all in black. Man, I, I, I don't say who, but let's just say one of the one of the people from the road crew. Going, Jerry Garcia never dressed for anybody else's pleasure once in his life. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, so obviously, like that's a huge. Th- those aren't mi- those aren't minor differences, even if they seem like it. Yeah, they're very much on the other side of a huge divide. Yeah, S- same with the less uh, 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 fascination or, or, or focus on um, financial details. Mm-hmm. I mean, maximizing revenue. Mm-hmm. Oh, maximizing revenue? That wasn't a Grateful Dead strategy. <laughs> no, no, they Spending were revenue was, was, was uh, what they were about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, the... Just keep the party rolling. Phil was very successful, but in order to be successful, he had to step outside the ethos that he'd lived in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was able to grab the power uh, by virtue of his, his market positioning and his own sort of inclination. Plus, the other three guys are knuckleheads. And and he knew it. Well, you know, he, he had a he had a, a two two young sons at the time, and uh, you know, as we know and talked about, uh, he had a serious health issue that was that was getting worse and worse. Um, and maybe he just felt that uh, you know this was a, a way to protect my my family. I see what he did. I understand it. I can even admire aspects of it. Uh, the, the, the Phil and Friends concept was daring. It was it was novel, uh, and and it worked. And, and and it was built to work 
because he could adjust it as he went along. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot to admire about what Phil did. Um, it's it's the the problem what the people are going to have with Phil and his wife in this book is the way they treated other people, the way they treated background singer Zoe Ellis, the way they treated guitarist Steve Kimmick, right. the way they right. treated it's... Bruce Hornsby or their manager Cameron yeah. Sears. Uh, they they didn't behave ethically or respectfully. They they behaved like uh, uh, people whose self interests were paramount. Right. Right. And I I understand self-interest being paramount. We live in this country. I know what's going on. But it just wasn't the Grateful Dead. But it's not honorable. Right. right, right. And it's not what hippies were about. It's not what the Grateful Dead was about. It was about evolved self-interest. Right. Not right. parochial, provincial self-interest. Not me first. Us first. Hmm. Okay, so they they... They all try to become fragmented from the Grateful Dead. Um, you know, uh, I actually love how Bob Weir just becomes a road dog uh, to deal with the loss. I think uh, um, he will be the happiest if he literally keels over at a Dead and Company show uh, long in the future, let's hope. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, and then... Uh, this is a guy who takes the bus home from tour. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's somebody who's serious about being a troubadour, you know? So uh, Mickey is the Energizer Bunny playing with any and all uh, while also developing, uh, you know, high-class friends like uh, like Al Gore. Uh, he seems to come across as the, kind of the most zen-like uh, of, the, of the bunch. Uh, and then uh, Billy Kreutzman uh, heads to paradise to live as, as much as he can off the grid uh, there on the Garden Island. Um, but like I said, Phil asserts himself musically. I, I think it's fair that – and you make this point that it's it's not all Phil bashing. I think some people take that t- too far. Um, it, it's fair to say that Phil and friends grew into the closest where the deadheads could feel the old glow. And I think you agree with that. I, there's no question that, that Phil and Friends was the fan favorite for a considerable period of time. Rat Dog made inroads on that and eventually kind of caught up with them. But uh, uh, there's no question that the, the further the, the Bob Weir-Phil Lesh collaboration was the most uh, closely embraced of the post-Jerry things by the Deadheads. And at the same time, it opened the door for a new audience to come in in the way that the other bands hadn't. Right, right. Uh, they, uh, which was, I think, the other ones and uh, and the dead, is, 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 if I remember right. Um, there are <laughs> six different versions of the Grateful Dead after Jerry died. Yeah, yeah. Two, three other ones... Uh, and uh, three calling themselves the dead. Yeah, you also actually point to uh, the the PR release that uh, you know puts the beast to dead, uh, to the the beast to, to to pasture called the Grateful Dead as a big mistake. Uh, it just was a strange thing for them to feel necessary to do, but it speaks to how uh, the, all the members of the band. Garcia included, had mixed feelings about the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it was something they were immensely proud of and happy to belong to. On the other hand, it was a huge burden. It was a clumsy beast 
that ruled their lives in uncomfortable ways often. So they had to put up with a lot of, of, of ordeal for the rewards. And they, that was something they, they, they dealt with all through their career. It was that these serious mixed feelings about the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And we're uh, talking about the four guys left behind. I mean, each one of them represents uh, unique aspects of the Grateful Dead ethos. I, I mean, as you, as you were outlining who these guys you saw them were, you know, we're the troubadour and Mickey the energetic. I see each of that coming out of that social laboratory of the Grateful Dead. Uh, a Bill Kreutzmann, a kind of primal man, uh, a, a studious uh, and and somewhat snarky, uh, but um, not malevolent Phil Lesh. That 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 strikes me as like the hippie huckster, and the, that was a big part of the Grateful Dead right. world too. Yeah, like the Diggers would do back in the day. Or, yeah, you yeah. know, some uh, a little some, little street theater, a little uh, little political anarchy. Grateful Dead manager Ron Rakow. Mm-hmm. who they met when he was running a pawn shop would be a perfect <laughs> example of that uh, part of it. He was amazing, and, and he was the, the, the architect behind the uh, carousel ballroom, and that was one of their more anarchistic experiments. So, you know, there's that whole thing. And then, you, like you say, we're, he retreated into the soul of the music. Yeah. And, and, and if he didn't embody it personally, he was going to be the water carrier he was going to carry that bucket around and 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 refresh everybody with it i you know i'm sure you'd agree that uh, this would have been hard for anybody uh given that situation to have to pick up the pieces after jerry passed um trying to figure out who you are now that you're not a part of this thing that you've been since you were well, well, certainly with Weir, since you were a teenager. That's right. Uh, you know, and um, you know, how 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 do you leave the 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 traveling hippie family circus? Um, it must have been incredibly difficult for for all of them. Like I said, Jerry's death just threw them all into this enormously catastrophic personal drama. And uh, that went on for 20 years, 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and they could not find a comfortable resolution. Mm-hmm. And they finally did. And, and that's what let me write the, write the book is running into Mickey Hart a couple of weeks after the Chicago shows and realizing how transformed he had been by that, that he was whole and complete and satisfied in ways I hadn't seen him since Jerry died. Right. I realized, ah, right. oh, you finally got through ending. it. Redem- you finally got through it. Redemption, right. Yeah. right? Right, right. So let's let's talk a little bit about Terrapin Station. Um, it shows up a lot in the in the book. Can you explain to the diggers uh, what was supposed to be the grand plan? The museum. Yeah. So this is so great. You know, the the book's first chapter is about that board meeting where they decided to dispense with the name of the Grateful Dead. Now, where do you go from that if you're a storyteller? What's your next scene? Well, in this case, some deadhead who designs theme parks for a living spends a weekend sketching out a plan for a Grateful Dead museum that would entail the band not having to tour and employ a lot of their resources and just sticks it in the mail to the Grateful Dead management. It's not unlike how Dennis McNally became the PR 
uh, guy. It just doesn't work in corporate America. Mm -mm. But they no, opened up the package the and, they, and they read it and they invited the guy up to meet with them. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, they're off and running on a multi-million dollar real estate project to try and develop a giant tourist attraction museum for the Grateful Dead they're going to call Terrapin Station in downtown San Francisco. Uh, architects are uh, put to work. Real estate is acquired. Partners are found. I mean, this thing was on the, the roll. I mean, it was just insane. And, I, and and some of the most fun interviews in the book were talking to these professionals that had gotten involved in this Grateful Dead project, the architects and the and the theme park planners. And uh -huh. They were like, uh, I mean, uh, well, the architect didn't understand Bobby Weir not sitting down at meetings. That was her thing. He, he just leaned against windowsills. I'm like, <laughs> God, you know. And, and, and of course, Bobby... Uh, he, he he was there for all of this. He's, he, when I asked him about it, he says, it's still a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but he, all his ideas were were um, not about making money. They were about spending money. He wanted a roller coaster on the roof. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, the real estate developer was building a condominium portion of it to, to help underwrite the uh, cost called the Mars Hotel. Oh, yeah. I mean, this thing was insane, and and it and the wheels came off of it because they couldn't get along, right? And 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 the, uh, they all hated each other, and 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 it didn't matter what they were going to do; they weren't going to do anything together. So the wheels came off didn't this matter, project, right. and they were sitting on this giant parcel of property in downtown San Francisco, and you know, eventually they sold that at a considerable profit, which they hadn't intended to make. <laughs> <laughs> So we know the band began as Ken Kesey's Backyard Act, worked its way into becoming the unofficial San Francisco band, um, but still living hand to mouth uh, until the 1980s when things changed. They become one of the biggest touring acts of the decade. So how big business did the Grateful Dead become after Jerry died? It seems here is where the core four so really again, start the to fall Dead. apart. They, they don't have anything happen to them by plan. Jerry dies, immediate end of revenue. No more touring. That's only money that was coming in. So they fire everybody, and they, and they don't have any idea what to do. But it so happens that they had a little pilot program going for selling CDs made from the tape vaults that the band had collected all over the years. And... Uh, they had two of these CDs out for sale when Jerry died. Oh, did sales pick up? Sales blew up. They had a day a few weeks after Jerry died where they took 20,000 orders. Now, keep in mind, they're running this business. They've got the CDs in the in the back of their uh, uh, warehouse. In San Rafael, right. They're, they're <laughs> stuffing them into envelopes and mailing them out every day. Tiff Garcia, Jerry's brother, is working right. mailing out mm -hmm. CDs. And suddenly, this thing is, like, huge. And they, they, they respond by, like, putting out more and more and more and more. And in no time, they're making $50 million a year wow. selling CDs. Yeah. Out of the, the fifty million that they had made touring is now coming out of there. Coming, yeah. and, and they don't even have to leave town. 
yeah. And then uh, that that doesn't even include the merchandise, uh, the uh, T-shirts. Oh, so was it was fifty million? Was everything about thing? And thing. they they started making deals with people to sell the T-shirts in uh, stores, and they that was just, I mean there was a a, a, a Q. VC shopping channel, uh, Grateful Dead show for a minute with Bill Walton selling this stuff. <laughs> Who better, right? Right, right. He's standing out there in front of the television camera. I remember the catalog. I used to get the catalog in the mail. I remember ski sets with yeah. with skulls and yeah. roses painted <laughs> on them, and golf. Uh, Anything uh, you could stick in the a little thing you put on top of golf clubs. So, so the business, the the actual business, uh, the professionalized Grateful Dead. Maybe that's the the big part of the the problem of why these four guys couldn't get together. Well, they together. didn't have any business. They 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 had money and they had uh, commerce, but the, they didn't have any business. Uh, the the guy that ran their merchandise program after Jerry died well, was an ex merchant marine whose sole experience was working for his brother who ran fan clubs. <laughs> uh, their manager at that time was somebody they met. Uh, uh, giving them a, a whitewater rafting tour. Uh, it was sort of an outward bound experience. They liked his rap and thought he might make a good manager. <laughs> I, I mean, they, they but that not... was always the case. I mean, they, they distrusted no, the, they any want... of the professional class. No, uh, nothing to do with any of those guys. No. I mean, their lawyer, the only reason they hired him was that he promised he wouldn't have another music business cl- uh, uh, client. Right, right. That's it. That was uh, that was the one and only, a, only one of the requests and otherwise come on the bus. So all this stuff just happened by accident. Yeah. And there was no plan to make money mm-hmm. or to do something that would result in revenue. I mean, that just wasn't in their thinking. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, there's 60 employees, mortgages, everybody's families are involved. Uh, these are associations that have gone on for decades. There was a deep sense of responsibility. And yet, at the same time, the responsibility was a burden. So a all weight, this right. stuff became yeah. very confusing in The Grateful Dead. And, and, and one of the reasons why this book is interesting is because of those issues. I mean, this wouldn't be an issue with the Jay Giles Band. No, or most other acts. They would just be cashing the checks and saying, thank you very much, and moving on with their lives. So so it seems like the darkest moment occurs in 2009 at uh, the CPA Tim Jorstadt's Marin office. Oh, you like that one for the darkest and, and not backstage at Shoreline in, two, in, in 99? Or what about the uh, meeting at the uh, Lesh House in 2005, 2006, uh, where Jill claims to have the solo Grateful Dead. Well, I, I, mean, I think Kreutzmann. Lot, I think Kreutzmann goes across the uh, the 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 table at Phil Lesh in the Jorstad meetings. So physicality. I think physicality crosses uh, right, crosses yeah. the line, and uh, and I and then you know I think that's where the estrangement really really comes because Phil uh, strips. Everybody out of the GDP, Grateful Dead Productions. That's pretty much the end of, of, of that. What little was left, uh, that's when Phil makes everybody walk the plank. Uh, he, he gets Bobby uh, to agree to do this thing with him. He gets the, Bobby the twofer, to, to yeah, yeah. fire his manager, fire his crew, uh, just do this. Now, well, but, but, but Phil and Bob's 
musical sensibilities are kind of diametrically opposed. I don't know how much they knew about that at the time. That that came to be a certain uh, a problem certain, as they as they went on tour. Developed, but uh, I think Bob was seduced by the idea of larger audiences. You know, Rat Dog had been living in three thousand seat theaters, mm-hmm. and further was an amphitheater act. Honestly, oh, huge difference. Yeah, and yeah, for somebody whose life is playing music in, in front, front of people, of, in yeah. front of people. That's just, uh, it's, it's an extraordinarily appealing uh, prospect. And if you attach to that prospect, you're also going to get more money. There's nothing wrong with that. No. Nobody dislikes getting more money. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the compensation for the work that you put in. That's, Whatever that's, it is, it's just, it's, it's going to come with the lunch. Yeah. And, and, and so Bobby took a seat at that table. Yeah. But it and didn't work he, out very well. He called well. Mickey and said that, you know, sorry. Uh, really wanted to ar- argue for you coming along. Maybe I can work you in later on as we get out there, but for now, you're collateral damage. That's what he said to his friend Mickey. <laughs> there was a lot of pain involved in that. There was a lot of pain in firing the long-standing manager whose wife was born in Bobby Weir's bed. Cassidy, right. Yeah. I know. So the that that 2009 moment was a, a huge and deep fissure uh and one of the things that undoubtedly hung over bobby's head as he went through the four years with further was a sense of guilt and complicity over screwing the other uh screwing the two the, drummers the two right drummers, right? right the rhythm devils so but they went out on <clears throat> on their own themselves too they just said when, screw when it they, we're gonna they, go do it ourselves when they got along they did yeah yeah but yeah. i mean you know uh Kreisman had his life in Hawaii, and he was there doing what he wanted to do. Mickey uh, is never short on things to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and he pursued a thousand fascinating enthusiasms. Uh, none of these guys were in a position where they had to, like, actually go out and work for a living because the dick no. CDs were still yeah. dumping fifty million a year on them. <laughs> Right. That's a, an incredible uh, a bit of fortune for a group of guys that really had no interest in that sort of aspect of life That's right. from the very beginning. It's, no, yeah, it's, it's just, it's it's not just something the, they ever really thought about. It's like, how do we make an extra nickel? But, I've, I've but been around the dead prove, all my yeah, adult life, yeah. and, and uh, the I've never seen that come up. Never. I've seen it with every other band I've been around. How do we make an extra nickel? And it never was a question for the Grateful Dead. And yet, they're one of the top, you know, money-making enterprises of how ironic in rock and roll. It, how ironic is that? <laughs> well, it, maybe it's just because the the truth and the passion and you know the 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 unaware uh, the lack of awareness of of that side of of the music business, if you will, um, you know, shined through in that. That by by being uh, against that um, uh, antithetical um, antithetical antithetical excuse me um, uh, they they uh, rose to the top. There's a lot of things about the Grateful Dead business model that are not intuitive. For instance, the taping. Yeah. Yeah. Which the record companies, I mean, were oh, like, what, what are you doing? Right, but it was hugely central to the band's enduring success. Yeah. So that's like 
something that the internet people really took to heart mm-hmm. was the Grateful Dead's taping model. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, uh, if you look at Spotify's free tier, yeah, you're not looking too at dissimilar Grateful to, Dead yeah, taping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's not forget that uh, Barlow uh, you know, helped start the uh, Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation. Uh, yeah, he said some FBI guy showed up at his <laughs> yeah, door and yeah, knew less about yeah. this shit than he did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he better, he better get on it. So, All right, so um, uh, uh, Phil ends up at Levon Helm's Midnight Rambles uh, at the barn, and Phil's getting tired of the road. Let's face it, he is He's been tired of the, the road a eldest. Long, long time. He is, you know, he was even a couple of years older than Jerry. Uh, and uh, Older, health problems, yeah. sick of the whole routine anyway. So the idea comes to take the Terrapin station and turn it into Terrapin Crossroads. And uh, have you been up to, uh, to the place in San Rafael? So I have, uh, my invitation must have gotten lost in the mail. Oh, <clears throat> was it because of that uh, that uh, uh, 1997 article where you called him Ichabod Crane? I said he looked like Ichabod <laughs> yes. Crane. Yes, you said you said he resembled. I believe is the actual yeah. word. So, uh, yeah, he. he but that he, was that he, was a tough moment for Phil. I, he was kind he of wasn't of looking good. He offended you know, by that, mm-hmm. and I ran into him a couple weeks later. Uh, thinking nothing of it, I mean, because the review is really just a, uh, uh, you know, a it was about the foundation. Uh, yeah, it was about a Christmas yeah. Carol concert, yeah. and and it was pretty whimsical. It wasn't really like critical or anything, but uh, Ichabod Crane was in keeping with the sort of tone of the piece. Right. Uh, and I ran into him at the Dead's Christmas party a couple weeks later, uh, and uh, he was quite miffy with me, and, and I remember Mickey making him shake hands and give me a hug and, in front of everybody, uh, but he wasn't buying into it. He was, like, resistant. So I knew that I'd, I uh, uh, had ruffled his feathers, but, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't take... In the newspaper business, I, I didn't take that kind of stuff seriously. I mean, you, you know... It's just I'm goes, not, goes with the there goes to with kiss the anybody's job. ass. That right. wasn't my job description. Right, right, right. And they knew right. that. Well, Phil ended up getting kind of what he wanted. It was a, a nice place that he can go and play uh, at uh, when he feels up to yeah, it. Yeah, and Bobby got one, too. Yes, uh, Sweetwater. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So it, it's funny because even though there's there there seems to be, uh, and, you know, the the book plainly lays it out, quite, quite a, a few you know, down moments uh, and 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 tough times between the four of them. And yet, you know, here we are, you know, 23 years after Jerry's gone, and they've all done pretty well. And uh, they've all kind of muddled through one way or another. But four remarkable men. I, I don't I don't think I don't think a, another band which would, you know, be more, you know, corporatized would have survived uh, some of these trials. I'm not sure these guys would have survived if it hadn't been for the uh, enduring appeal that they they had for, uh, for the Deadheads. I, I I really think that the the Dead's fan community is responsible. Lifted them up. They uh, kept responsible them Responsible for the entire Fair the Well concerts. Yeah. I think yeah. they promoted those concerts. Right. I know the band guys didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. They felt obligated to do it. Well, I know somebody who did, and that's Peter Shapiro. Peter came out of the fans. He's, he, Peter Shapiro 
is is right out of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. He's an authentic Grateful Dead fan. Uh, you, you know, what makes Peter different is his vision was a leadership vision, and he became like this concert <laughs> producer, yeah. and he yeah. trained himself for the very job that he has. Mm-hmm. I'm super impressed with Peter. So how did the Fairly Well concerts come about? Uh, did, did Peter write a personal letter and send it to the Grateful Dead Man, and they Peter read it? Peter wasn't even the first guy in with the author. Dick Clark was. Oh, oh, oh of course. It's so crazy. So, no, I, I, th- I think that it was just expected that they were going to do something. It was just expected. And the band knew they were expected. They knew they weren't getting along. Further, it just broken up. Bobby and, and Phil weren't back to not speaking and hating on each other. Uh, Bobby was in terrible physical condition. His, his, his shoulder was just a mess, and he would eventually have surgery and go through months of therapy and stuff just so he could hold the guitar properly. Right. Uh, mixed in with that was problems with pain pills and alcohol, which didn't help the situation at all. But uh, nobody wanted to do this. It was the deadheads anticipation of it that they all felt and and that's what they responded to i mean there was no impetus from the musicians like oh man i wanted to get go to my old brothers and play that music one more time uh-uh man everybody's you know mixed feelings had been mixed up again and uh nobody was too gosh darn friendly about anything right um so until they saw the returns at the Stinson they Beach post office, they were surprised. They were shocked at that. They went ninety through, million dollars. I know it's just amazing, <laughs> but they didn't. They, they they didn't. They didn't do it for the money. Swear to God, that's just not in their their vocabulary. The money's nice. They like money. They live like millionaires, but it's not what motivates them. It's always been available to them or not. They did it because they felt they had to. In order to, to live up to having ha- been members of the Grateful Dead, who had been so royally supported by this vast army of supporters called Deadheads, in order to live up to that compact with the Deadheads, they had to do this and they knew it. It was an obligation. Now, what, how it was going to happen was going to hinge on that very fragile personal relationship and peter shapiro turned out to be the person positioned to bridge those four camps dick clark was not no. going to bridge it greg perloff another planet was not going to bridge it uh the it took a, it took a deadhead would, a real deadhead and to, somebody you know. who'd already done business extensively with each of the four right right and Paid Phil millions of dollars at that point to sign a contract to do, well, I mean, take over Phil's recording business and performing business. Mm -hmm. He became Phil's exclusive entrepreneur uh, outside of the Terrapin Crossroads thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was able to negotiate this with the Leshes in a way that nobody else could. And he and he was able to finesse it. Now, what he finessed was limited rehearsals, limited shows, and then once that deal was set, then within the parameters of that, 
a lot of creativity was applied to, to doing those shows. Any other band would have put together one set and done it five times. Right. Uh, it, but, well, it, it, it did start with just the first three Chicago shows, right? right? That was that was going to be it. That was it. You got three shows, a standard Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, and that was it. And then the demand was so great that they added the two shows in Santa Clara, right? That was an incredible shock to the band. Just the the outpouring of love. Unbelievable the, amount the demand of, of ticket sales. Just, yeah, just, right. you know. Like you say, Over the top. $90 million would have sold out the Chicago shows three times. Yeah. And that that was sitting in money orders and cashier checks over in a post office box in West Marin County. <laughs> yeah. That's so, amazing. Yeah, they, 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 I, don't, they, I don't think any other band could do that. Maybe if the Beatles got back together. but So this was a, the, uh, the, the biggest concert with a single band on it, the bill, yeah. in history. Yeah. However you measure it, you know... Box office gross, number of tickets sold. Yeah, number of attendees, yeah. Whatever you measure, this is the biggest rock concert ever. Yeah, Uh, in 2015, yeah. So, Um, but is it the end? Nothing's ever the end. I mean, have have you seen (laughs) Dead & Company? Have you gotten to see uh, the new? Everybody loves Dead & Company. Dead & Company uh, registers with the fans as like the best of the post-Jerry bands. Yeah. Uh, what a surprise that is. I actually uh, caught him last year down at Shoreline, and I was having my head bent because I saw the Grateful Dead at Shoreline many times, but I also saw John Mayer at Shoreline when it was uh, Your Body is a Wonder Oh, Man, yeah, when, when he was the pop hero, right. Full right. of 14-year-old girls. <laughs> and and I just kept trying to get my head around this, like, aye, aye, aye. But it works. It, it works enough. I mean, it's still not the Grateful Dead, dude. No. And, uh, you know, the Emperor's New Clothes apply, man. That cat is naked. Uh, but, yeah, it was okay. I mean, you know, uh, uh, it was certainly more satisfying than Rat Dog or, or any of these other versions of it, even the Dead, uh, that I saw. But I'm not sure why. Bass player, you could understand him. O'Teal? Yeah, he comes down on the one. <laughs> Drummers like that. Yes, they do, don't uh, they? <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Mayor's got a so great voice. I think the all, voc- vocally, that all they, came, may, they may be the best incarnation of the dead well, vocally. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, the whole thing came together before Phil had uh, agreed to do Fare Thee Well. Yeah, I think uh, Mayor and Weir had met each other. They jammed together when uh, uh, John Mayer was. Uh, well, they were uh, thinking the 50th the anniversary is coming up. Yeah. We should, you know, get some woodshed in. Mm-hmm. I've got this guy, John Mayer, coming up to jam with me. Why don't you guys come in? So Don was the record producer, came up and played bass, and the and the keyboard player from Fish sat in. Uh, and, oh, Paige McConnell and mm-hmm. and and uh, Mickey and Billy brought in the drum sets, and they, and they were rehearsing when uh, at Bobby's place in Marin when Peter Shapiro showed up to go set up the Levi Stadium shows. So at that point, like. Was, something was happening. Something was happening, mm-hmm. but it wasn't nailed down. And Dead and Company was kind of like hovering as a plan B. Oh, just in case the whole thing fell apart. Got to do something. Wow. All right. When it's all said and done, when the historians write the final book on rock and roll, where do you think the Grateful Dead winds up in the Pantheon? Well, the Grateful Dead are one of the most important American rock bands 
um, in the history of the music. The not only by virtue of their body of work and their connection to an audience and the historic events in which they participated, Monterey, Woodstock, what have you, fare thee well. Uh, the, the, the essence of the band left behind such an imprint, you know, not just the business model, the philosophy. This is a band that meant something, that stood for something. And then the other thing is, like, the music's going to last. And the reason the music's going to last... Huge catalog. It's not just huge. It touches. It draws from every corner of American music. It does, yeah. yeah. It is. That may be the real Bill Monroe, yep. Ornette Coleman, Chuck Berry, Django Reinhardt. In an hour. Yeah. Well, three or four, but yeah. I know. They'll touch on those within an <laughs> oh, hour. Oh, yeah, with the set. Yeah, within yeah, an yeah, hour. Yeah. They, they will hit those corners. Uh, yeah. And and you can't imagine that kind of breadth in any other orchestra or, or, or popular music aggregation. It's just like, mm-hmm. how, how does that envision encompass that much territory? Mm-hmm. And that's the genius of Jerry Garcia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's what gives the band... Uh, it's it, it's it's grounding. I, I mean, Pamela, my co-author, she says that uh, their music, because they've drawn from all this American music, that it's embedded in our DNA uh, to 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 appreciate the dead. And for me, like, it's the Grateful Dead and the Beach Boys who have articulated the American history yeah. in popular music. Especially the, the the California story. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, black music is super important to this whole story. And I don't want to sound like I'm ignoring the vast contribution when I hold up a couple of O-Face from California, like the Dead and the Beach Boys. But uh, those are uh, signatories of the rock culture. And, the you know, beneath them you can find all the sources of their work that they drew from. But those are the guys that could represent the left wing and the right wing of this incredible movement. Both from California, one from Southern California, one from Northern California. It's no accident. It's no accident. I have lots of theories about that. but uh, we'll, we'll leave that for the next time we you know, get Ricky together. Nelson was the first California rock and roll star. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I'm... Um, Richie Valens. Richie Valens, wasn't no, he's he? A, he's after Ricky. Is he? Yeah, he's 58. Yeah. Ricky was 56, 57. Oh, you got me, Joel Selvin. So what is next? I wrote the book. <laughs> Speaking of books, what is next for Joel Selvin? Oh, there's a bunch of projects in the works. You know, I just finished working on a movie that uh, is is coming together, a documentary about Chicago blues. Oh, okay. And, uh, the, you know, I've been talking to... Uh, Peter Noon of Hermits Hermits about doing an As Told to. I love those books. Yeah. And he's got a great story. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm sure he does. Well, we look forward to uh, keeping on, uh, keeping up with what you, you have to offer. It's been uh, a great ride so far. Great book, fairly well. Really recommend it to everybody out there, deadheads and non-deadheads, to know the, the real story of what happened after Jerry Garcia died. Um, Joel, thanks for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Great to be here. Thanks very much. I want to tell you how it's going to 
Diggers, deadheads, I implore you to wade into the Black Muddy River and read the book yourself. It's a good book. I couldn't put it down. Sure, if your love light is set to high and you think Selvin is just a dire wolf at the door attacking the mythology of the Grateful Dead, okay. But really, you're missing the point. It's not a screed or unauthorized sleazy biography, but a journalist's honest account of what happens to the hippie ethic when the head hippie is no longer playing in the band. And while it was a tumultuous 20 years, in the end, the core four turned out all right, and everyone got what they were really after. Once again, the book is Fare Thee Well, the final chapter of The Grateful Dead's Long Strange Trip by Joel Selvin and Pamela Turley. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Pamela. And thank you for stopping by. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Until next time, keep up the rockin'. of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.